Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to our Top 5 at 5, where we get some of the best minds uh, for you on the investment front to kind of give you their big picture. But importantly as well, really to get... uh, they're top stock ideas. And what I love about this as well is that we do it in 20 minutes. So it's very uh, And today we have Christine Poole, who's a veteran in the uh, in the equity markets. And Christine, I don't know, fixed income as well, or is it, is it always been really equity focused for you? Um, I mean, my focus is equities, but we do um, have a balanced um, asset mix strategy that we offer our clients, which includes fixed income as well. Okay. Okay, great. Um, let, let's get started here in terms of your big picture macro views. Um and, uh, you know, in, in the notes that you sent over, I thought it was really interesting to talk and, and to really focus in on what's happening. We don't talk a lot about it, but deglobalization, and we don't talk about it because it's been, you know, decades of globalization. But, right. but there is the possibility that we really are in an era, a new era of deglobalization. What does that mean to you? What does it look like? Well, you're right, Catherine, and we've seen more and more commentaries about people writing better, like Larry Fink uh, last week and Howard Marks and his most recent note. And I think you're right, like the last 30, 40 years, it was all about uh, globalization, moving your cost of manufacturing to the lowest cost in the world, which was beneficial for um, developed worlds because we got lower price goods and good for, it was deflationary and it was good for the countries that were getting the manufacturing activity because it was helping their economy to grow. And I think given what's happened the last few years, and it's not just the Ukraine, Russia war, but even with the health crisis, we kind of, you know, companies woke up that, wow, have your factories overseas somewhere where, you know, that's impacting those economies much more differently than over here to try and move the goods over that created a lot of difficulty. And so we first start, I think, seeing some of that move about not even maybe deglobalization, but more local sourcing or onshoring that, mm-hmm. you know, you saw the semiconductor industry. We know there's a huge shortage. They started to um, make moves to have more foundries built in the United States. You know, Intel's doing that. We've seen announcements by uh, Taiwan Semi and even Samsung to start building facilities in the U.S. Uh, so that it's closer to the end market. So that was kind of a shift. And then now with the uh, Ukraine-Russian war, realizing that you don't want to be dependent on on politically different ideological countries on key materials and goods. And so you've got uh, the EU moving to decrease the reliance on Russian energy products. So what does that mean? Uh, More imports from politically or more democratic friendly countries like the United States, potentially Canada, more LNG facilities, and as well, um, maybe accelerated growth to renewables. I mean, that's been an ongoing trend and maybe there's a renewed focus. You're seeing that in, uh, in Europe that you know, maybe we have to focus more on getting more green energy to displace the, the Russian energy. Mm-hmm. Um, just to pick up on the, on the point about um, uh, Europe receiving LNG from the United States, can we just talk a little bit about that? Your sense in terms of how quickly that can actually happen and, and to what degree and, and from a capacity perspective? 
Well, that I mean, I think the United States already announced that they're going to start um, exporting a certain amount, but it's definitely not going to displace what uh, Russia has been exporting to the EU. So that will take some time. And we know LNG facilities typically take years to um, construct. I read something uh, something this morning about a small, I think, private firm that's proposing to get something up and running smaller within the year. We'll see if that mm. happens. But I think uh, Europe is also trying to source some other countries that over there that, um, you know, they can, that's not Russia, but it's, it will take time. I mean, it, yeah. definitely. and you saw the announcement with uh, this morning, well, Biden supposedly is going to announce release of strategic reserves, which to help kind of alleviate the, the short-term supply crunch, but it's not going to be a fast solution. Definitely, Catherine, which is why mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, it, it's going to require money, funds, and if governments decide that, okay, let's focus on renewables, that's a matter of just providing funding and accelerating that construction process. But it is going to take a while, and OPEC seems to be um, quite content right now to stay the course and, and not mm-hmm. uh, increase production too quickly. And so am I hearing from you then that, and we're going to get to your stuff in a second, but you're, it sounds like as though you're definitely setting up to invest in some renewables and infrastructure on that front. But I, it also sounds as though you're planning for higher inflation for longer because you know this will be the reverse of globalization, which decreased the cost for all of us across the board. I mean, remember years ago when we all wanted a big TV and it was just so expensive. I mean, I'm going back 20, 25 <laughs> years ago. It was, it was such a luxury item. And then it became so commonplace. There, there might be reversals of maybe not TVs, but other aspects or new products that, that we haven't yeah. even thought about yet. Yeah, I think you're right that uh, I do think inflation will stay higher for longer. I mean, you, you know, my my perspective pre the war was that things would start to improve in the back half as the supply chain issues resolved, as the health crisis started to pass. And now you've got food and energy you know, spiking up. And while we know the central banks tend to exclude that component when they measure uh, inflation, it's going to definitely hamper households because you're paying more. Uh, and that may mean that they're going to have to um, spend less in other areas of the economy. So for myself, you know, corporate profits is really the key driver for equity markets. And we're, you know, I think we're just starting to see maybe some earnings revisions downwards because many companies, mm. when they reported their fourth quarter, they were alluding that, you know, yes, things were getting a bit better. But perhaps, perhaps towards the latter half of this year, they would see you know, much more easier um, access to various supplies. And that may not happen as quickly. So right now, consensus is still for, let's say, the S&P 500 and the TSX to grow earnings in that mid-single digit range. Now, perhaps energy will displace some of the low earnings from other uh, industries. But mm-hmm. that's something to watch for because that would be a negative for stock markets, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this uh, current quarterly reporting season, which is yeah. going to begin in the next week, um, is going to be really key and critical in terms of the guidance and what that might mean for stocks. And, and yeah. you know, and I think if anything now, uh, well, at least for the past year, two years, you know, it's been critical to to be a stock picker in the stock market. So yeah. actually on that note, let's, let's take a look at your sure. first pick, which is, Google, um, yes. this is a name that you'd buy today, you own, and you'd feel comfortable continuing to own in and amongst all of this uncertainty. Yeah, because, you know, I think there's like, you know, we classify stocks into general categories, Catherine, income and growth stocks. And definitely, I think um, Alphabet fits into that category of growth. They are in a secular growth industry, which is important when you have an environment where 
the economy is probably stalling. We're seeing revisions downwards for economic growth. So obviously online advertising um, is going to probably outgrow the normal economic cycle and Alphabet's very well positioned. They've been done, they've done very well the last few years and kind of you can see really outperforming uh, Meta, which is Facebook slash Facebook, their primary competitor for online advertising. And I think, you know, also in a rising interest rate environment, you want companies that have very strong balance sheets. Google has, it has a net cash balance on its uh, balance sheet. It's about $200, almost $200 per share in cash. And mm -hmm. so, you know, and, you know, it's trading at about 24 times forward earnings. So not inexpensive when you look at even the market multiple has come down. But I think for a company that's going to grow, let's say their top line around 15%, very high margins. And they have other areas like uh, the cloud business, which is not turning a profit, but as it gets larger, um, I expect it will. And that's another high growth area, you know, cloud infrastructure, all companies are looking there to increase productivity. So the, I think that's a good name to own in that large cap tech space. You know, Christine, it's interesting because when I think about um, large cap tech today versus the early 2000s, mm -hmm. um, when the tech bubble burst, those large cap companies, tech companies that had a higher multiple, much higher yeah. than what we're talking about today, yeah. um, took 10 years to kind of recoup those, those stock losses. When I think about today um, and the innovation that's taking place within tech, taking us to another world like the metaverse yeah. that um, that I there's there's part of me that feels comfortable owning a Google even if the market goes down because of all the innovation and growth that they're doing versus the big tech companies you know from 20 years yeah. ago that were really just product based and, and and solely siloed focused yeah no I think you're right I mean they've got you know artificial intelligence they, I mean that's that's one of their key tools to help um, their customers advertise more effectively and they have like you know i talked about they have other little um what they call other bets with its waymo with this driver you know driverless uh, uh car industry which could be very disruptive potentially down the road it's still evolving and so and they make a lot of money unlike some of the tech stocks that you talked about during the tech wreck they were kind of concept stocks. They weren't, um, you know, they're, they're, these companies are very profitable when you think about even Alphabet or Microsoft. Their margins are very high, they're growing. And I, as I said before, they have very strong balance sheets to tap into the reserves to invest for the future. And, and, they're, and they're doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, let's take a look at the next top pick, Brookfield mm -hmm. Asset Management. And I feel like this is one of those names that, you know, you can buy it, you own it, you almost don't have to look at it, which you should, never not do so i don't know how, how do you look at this company and continue well, to have confidence constantly well it, it i mean they're they are a diversified company that you know also alternative asset management i think is a growth industry so once again that secular growth theme it is growing yes interest rates are going up but i think not to the extent that you know many of their uh, you know pension funds and sovereign wealth funds they they want to invest in hard assets and this is what Brookfield does if you look at all their different silos. So you know, I think it's good for a retail investor in particular to own Brookfield because you get exposure to real estate, to infrastructure, renewables, private equity, uh, credit. They did a great, um, they bought a 60% interest, I think in uh, Oak Tree a few years ago, which, which is mm. very established in credit. So that was a brand new platform for Brookfield. They decided to buy versus grow it internally. And so that automatically doubled their um, client base. And they could, they could, they're doing a lot of cross-selling and they've been very successful, as you know, Catherine, at raising money. Um, Mark Carney's the vice chair for their global transition fund. So they're all in the right areas of the market. And definitely this company has been around for a long time. 
management is very capable and has a solid track record. So, I mean, you can buy some of those independent um, verticals that I mentioned that trade, or you can buy Brookfield, which is kind of a culmination of all of them. And I think they will benefit in this environment because they're very, you know, they actually like disruption or dislocation because it gives them an opportunity to buy assets at a lower price. I mean, I think I was reading his fourth quarter um, shareholders note when everyone hated real estate during the midst of COVID and thought, you know, no one's ever going to go into a mall again or et cetera. They were picking up, you know, inexpensive assets. And now they're actually selling some of them and making a nice return even after just a year. So they like to go into areas that are distressed and buying low and, and selling high, which is what one should do, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so just to kind of recap here, it's a way for the retail investor to own um, alternative assets and alternative asset manager, uh, which would include, you know, the real estate, as you mentioned, yeah. infrastructure, but private private equity as well, which, you know, yeah. most people can't get access to unless they're an accredited investor. And, and then you've yeah. got on top of that, you know, some of the best, smartest minds in the world managing that company, Brookfield Asset Management. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Um, and there's a dividend. It's not, I forget not what huge. it is. It's not huge. It's about a hundred percent. It's not huge, but yeah, yeah. it's like dividend. I mean, I don't okay. think they're more invest interested in growing their, you know, growing their cash flow and reinvesting versus paying out cash. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's always a decision. Um, let's take a look at the next one. Fortis um, yes. trades on the TSX and the ticker there is FTS. Yeah. So this is your boring utility company. We've owned it it's a core income stock for us. The yield is about three and a half percent. So not the highest yield, but you know, it's, I think it's a reasonable yield in this environment. And more importantly, this company, um, their cash flows are very uh, defensive, visible because of the regulated operations. The bulk of their assets is generation distribution. They do have some, sorry, distribution and um, just not generation is actually a very small component, but they are transitioning one of their generating assets is coal to, to renewables. So that's an area of growth. And as many um, for forests, they have a big presence in the United States. And so as we get more renewable sources put in place, you're going to need transmission lines built in to get that generation to you know, the end consumer. And as well, in this rising rate interest environment, I think it's very important when you're looking at income stocks to look for companies that will increase their dividend annually, because that will add to be a buffer to rising interest rates. And Fortis has indicated, given their backlog of capital projects, that they can increase their dividend 6% annually through 2025. And they have 48 years of record of increasing their dividends every year. So that's what you want to look mm. for, that track record and the visibility in their cash flow to increase their dividends. It, what's the risk with buying it now? Well, the risk, I guess, is if we actually get the war, war ends tomorrow and you know, all of a sudden growth becomes the new everything shifts back to growth. So mm -hmm. then these more defensive areas like utilities will likely lag in stock performance. But I think that's fine because you're still going to get that yield and they're probably still going to be able to grow their share price a little bit. It'll lag in a market like that. Or if maybe rates really spike up um, very sharply in the in near term, then of course, you, as you know, Catherine, other income producing um, areas like utilities they tend to maybe, you know, you have a competing, the bond, bond rates really spike up. So once the bonds are, let's say, get to five or 6%, then maybe the three and a half percent dividend you're getting from Chile is not quite as attractive. But mm -hmm. the flip side is that if we're in this uh, uh, period of uncertainty, growth is slowing, uh, perhaps a recession may happen in the next 12, I don't know, 12 to 24 months, we're not sure the timing 
then mm -hmm. these are names that will do well, I think. So you yeah. want to have a defensive component in your portfolio as well. I, you know, I just interviewed um, on Tuesday, Joe Rabel, who's one of my favorite uh, technical analysts on okay. Wall Street. I used to work with him. Okay. And, um, and he was really highlighting the, uh, the utilities as, as showing up very strong on a technical perspective. Um, we didn't look at the Canadian ones, but on the U.S. front, absolutely. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Um, let's take a look at the next one. Uh, Lind, L-I-N. Yeah, Lindy industrial, uh, PLC. It's Lindy. an industrial gas company. Uh, it's a kind of an oligopoly. They are, their competitors are air liquid and air products. So Lindy merged with Praxair, which was a uh, US-based company a few years ago. And the reason why we like um, Lindy, you know, we, earlier I spoke about um, the semiconductor industry and how they're you know, building facilities closer to the, the United States, et cetera. Uh, uh, foundries, semiconductor manufacturing requires a lot of specialty gases in their process. So electronics is one of their end verticals and they're, um, it's showing very good growth. And so they're benefiting from these new foundry builds because they will supply um, directly to the foundry these specialty gases. And Lindy also, um, it tends to be relatively defensive. It is an industrial, but even, even in 2020, in our last recession, uh, their revenues, I mean, they still managed to grow at kind of low single digit and grow their earnings actually double digit. So they're very um, productive in terms of adjusting their operating costs when things slow. And the company even said for this year, even if they anticipate no economic growth, they feel they can still grow their earnings double digit, but they are seeing decent growth in all the vertical markets. And once again, we talked about LNG or chemical plants, you know, they all require gases, like that's what they do. And Lindy right. also participates in kind of the, the, in the future, the clean, clean energy um, path, because they will provide hydrogen, green hydrogen, all different colors of the hydrogen. Um, and they're helping actually to build out a hydrogen infrastructure in South Korea. So there are a lot of interesting end markets that I think will grow, have nice growth rates in the future. Do these companies though, like the, when I remember, you know, covering or spending time on air products and Praxair, yeah. they, they do move in conjunction with the economic projections and economic outlook. Um, yes, there is obviously they, because as you know, as the economy improves, there's more uh, manufacturing or whatever yeah. activity. So there is that extent, but you know, some of the, they, they, Lindy says that about 40% of their vertical markets, that's healthcare, electronics, clean, uh, clean energy. Those are more defensive and not um, as cyclical. If you think about healthcare, they supply oxygen, various glasses for MRIs and x-rays, and those things um, don't really follow the economy. And obviously they did benefit during COVID because there was more oxygen required at hospitals. But on the flip side, as things are opening up, you know, you have a surge, all the electric, electric surgeries coming back. So, so the, mm. you know, they, there is some markets that are not as cyclical, which I think um, will benefit them. Okay. Um, let's take a look at your next uh, topic, WSP Global, WSP on the TSX. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about the company fundamentals. Sure. So it's a, it's a global engineering design and services firm based out of Montreal. Even though it is Canadian based and listed in the TXX, very global, about 17% of their revenues are in Canada and the rest is around the world. And, you know, they, they are great. You know, why we like this space, first of all, one, um, just generally speaking, they did a great acquisition about a year and a half ago, Golder, which was a, a leading player in the, in the earth and environmental side of um, engineering, which is a growing area. 
everyone's becoming much more aware of, you know, environmental impacts of any facility they're bringing in or, or even mining and oil and gas. And um, so they're, they, 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 they will grow organically. I kind of in that they're, they're guiding to about 5% organic growth, but they also will um, grow through acquisition because it is a very, uh, uh, lots of different small companies out there like to grow by acquisition. You're buying people and they're very, they have very good relationships and they've been very successful in doing that. That's how they have been able to expand globally as well as um, through different verticals. And I think they continue mm -hmm. to do that. And balance sheet, once again, very strong balance sheet um, to do that, to take, uh, uh, take advantage of opportunities. And they have two core shareholders, um, uh, the case mm -hmm. and CPP own about 15% mm -hmm. of the company each. So I think, you know, that's kind of nice too, because when they come across and they want to buy, they typically will participate and provide funding as well. So, and then I, once, you know, we, we talked about um, onshoring or whatever, you know, I think if we see more construction activity, obviously the design companies will get involved and, you know, I'm sure WC will be in there. They don't do construction. And that was one of the reasons why we like this company versus some of the other companies, construction you know, tends to be the area where these uh, ENC companies get into trouble because they get into cost overruns and yeah. they have a lagging impact on, as you know, on financials for a very long time. Right. So these, the, this group, this company sticks right with the, the design and, uh, and the engineering capability, not taking right. on the construction costs and construction yeah. risks, which means that's you have right. to price things right, et cetera. So, yeah. And we, we, and we know we've got a few country, companies in Canada run into difficulties, right? And, and it takes yes. a long time to roll off sometimes. So yeah. So they say they will stick purely with services and design advisory services. Okay, Christine, that was great. And, and just to, for everybody who's listening to know, Christine is the CEO and Managing Director of Global Invest Capital Management. Um, so people can reach out to your company. Um, what, do, what do you provide in terms of, um, is it segregated accounts? Is it pooled accounts? What is it? Yeah, it's all segregated um, portfolios, meaning that our clients all own the underlying stocks or bonds. We do not tend to buy mutual funds or ETFs. So it is mm -hmm. purely individual securities that they own their portfolios. Nice. And is there a minimum? Minimum is about say? five. It's typically 500,000. Um, okay. Yeah. So, but you know, okay, we're, we're spread across Canada. And yeah, so if anybody has any questions further, feel free to follow up with me. Excellent. Okay, Christine, thanks so much for today. Yes, Top five and five. Thank you. We'll okay. see you soon.